it was with horror that we heard the news break on Wednesday night, the killings that took place in a church in Charleston, South Carolina. An unspeakable evil that certainly and surely has impacted all of us. To think that the hatred of racism could be so strong as to cause a young man to violate the sanctity of a house of worship abhors us all. It reminds us that we are all vulnerable when our places of sanctuary, our places of worship are desecrated. And to think that even as news following the capture and the relief that came with that, the news of a man from Oklahoma affirming on Facebook and saying that these killings were justified. This morning, let us grieve. And let us ask the Spirit of God to come and to be helper and comforter and counselor to us all. Let's pray. Father, the work of the evil one is to steal and to kill and to destroy. And we have seen the fruit of that work in our nation over these last days. Our hearts are broken. Our, our words to try to understand this just don't seem to be there. We hurt. We grieve. We're confused. And yet we also know that You are a God of life and a God of redemption. We pray for the churches in South Carolina and Charleston today that have met and are meeting that You would begin that incredible work of healing and redemption. And Father, may we confess our own hurt and our own grief as we watch the events take place from miles away and realize and understand the impact that this has on each of us. Father, come and be with us in our midst. Bring healing and comfort and peace to us today. And we give You thanks that You are with us even in the midst of evil. It's in the name of the Father that we pray. Amen. I think it's fitting today that we continue in our series of James in chapter 2, and we look at this issue of faith. As we work through James, and we're using this beautiful picture here of an upside-down iceberg and enjoying the beauty of that picture, we are reminded that some of the wisdom that James shares with us in this brief letter at first can appear a little upside-down itself. But if we'll give James the benefit of the doubt and we'll explore and, and we'll look into the beauty of what he is saying, we too can discover the depths and the meaning of what James is leading us to 
And today, James takes us into a journey of faith in which he proclaims and begins to help us to understand that faith and works are inseparably linked. Faith and works are partners, not rivals. They're complementary, not contradictory. In fact, faith and works are two different sides of the same coin of salvation, if you would allow me to use that analogy. For you see, in Christianity, one does not exist without the other. True Christian faith does not exist apart from both faith and works. William Barclay says this, he says, no man will ever be moved to action without faith. And no man's faith is real until it moves him to action. Faith and deeds are opposite sides of a man's experience of God. Now some of you that have have studied and read a little bit about the book of James know that, that Martin Luther, the leader of the Reformation, considered James a strawy epistle precisely because of his understanding, James's understanding of faith and works. And Luther's interpretation and understanding of that contradicted from Paul's teaching on works. But I believe that Paul and James are not, again, speaking in contradiction to each other, but are rather speaking complementary. You see, Paul is concerned about works salvation. He is concerned about those that would say, you can achieve salvation. You can do enough good things to earn your way into the good graces of God and into eternal life. And so because he is focusing on this heresy, Paul comes out and reminds us again and again and again that we are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift. It is not something that we can work towards and to earn. We are not saved by our works. But I believe James is speaking specifically to those who have already found salvation. They've already discovered God's grace. And James says this. He says, you cannot profess or claim Jesus as Lord of your life just by your words. There must be accompanying works that validate or verify this faith. For James, faith is revealed and demonstrated and proclaimed by our works. So if you'd allow me to use a a couple of theological words, Paul's consideration of faith and works is more along the lines of justification. Whereas James's works and dealing with faith and works, more along the lines of sanctification, of growing and working, maturing in your faith. You see, James is warning us that faith without works is without worth. It's upside down. Take your Bibles and and turn with me to James chapter 2. In this short passage from 14 to 26, James just repeats this idea over and over and over again. He's trying to to allow its words and its truth to, to penetrate our hearts and our minds. 
So look in verse 14. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? A a rhetorical question that the obvious answer is, well, of course not. Continuing in verse 17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Reinforcing this thought again in verse 24. You see that a a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, I don't think James, and I don't read and understand James is saying faith plus works equals salvation. Rather, again, James is saying faith at work reveals salvation. And then finally, in verse 26, he finishes up this, uh, this teaching. Faith without works is dead. So there in those 12 or so verses, James four times teaches and reminds us and helps us to understand that faith and works are intricately woven together into faith. You see, I I think one of the questions that that James is helping us to understand is is one of those life questions, one of those ultimate questions that that every human being begins to ask at some point in their life. The rich young ruler asks the question this way, what must I do to inherit eternal life? James puts the question as we've already read it. What must I do to have saving faith or What is saving faith? So how would you answer this question? Fathers, on Father's Day, as as your child would come to you and and, and as they begin to grow and ask spiritual questions, how would you answer that question for them? Father, Dad, what is saving faith? What, What must I do to inherit eternal life? As we talk about saving faith, I think there's at least two aspects that that we have to always keep in tension with each other. The first is certainly is the the eternal aspect of saving faith. Is our hope and our our trust and our belief that faith in Christ is not just for this world, but saving faith in Christ is a salvation that takes us into eternity. Eternity. That there is a future beyond this life. And even amidst the mystery of of what we say, we place our faith and our hope that in Christ is a saving faith that leads to salvation after death. And certainly as we've heard the, the reports from the families of victims out of Charleston reflecting their great hope in the promise of eternal life. And that this Earthly separation caused by murder is not an eternal separation. But we must also remember that saving faith has an earthly presence as well. That God is calling us into a present experience of salvation. That saving faith has an impact upon this world, the culture, and the life that we live today. You see, faith 
touches both the present and the future. As we look through this passage in James, I think there's some, some characteristics, some things that we can discover, we can notice about what saving faith is. First of all, I think James wants us to know that, that faith, saving faith, is active. Now, he's already introduced us to this in chapter 1. In, in verse 22, James says this, that we're to be doers of the Word, not merely hearers. And, and isn't it interesting that the implication is those who are simply hearers of the Word of God are those that delude themselves. They delude themselves, if you'd allow me to say, they delude themselves in their faith. Because, as he's explaining now, their faith is not real. It is not a saving faith. Therefore, we are to be doers of the Word, not merely hearers. Faith is not passive or sedentary. Yes, of course, there are times when faith rests. When faith waits. But overall, faith is active and visible and demonstrable. Works prove our faith and our faith inspires our works. The second thing I think that James is telling us here in this first illustration of what true saving faith is in verses 15 and 16 is that saving faith is charitable. Now, again, many of us don't like that word. But I think that the word charity is the absolute best English translation of the word agape, love, that we have in the English language. Because this idea of charity conveys what unconditional love is about. That this kind of love that is a part of the kingdom of God, that is a part of this law of liberty that James talks to us about in these first chapters, is founded and based upon agape love, upon a love that is unconditional, a love that is always giving, without any expectation or demand of return. Charity is the opposite of a Another word. A word that reflects a, a significant spiritual movement of the day in which James was written. But also a word that I think reflects a movement among us today that we must be careful of. A movement called Stoicism. Stoicism embraces apathy. Not charity. You see, apathy is the absence of all emotion and feeling. If you watch the events of this week without any emotion, I would caution you to be aware of this way of life called Stoicism. For you see, the aim of Stoicism is a life of serenity. Emotion, feeling, compassion, disturb serenity. So the way to mature as a Stoic is to do away with all emotion, to do away with all pity and compassion, 
to do away with all charity, to not get involved. Because why? Because if we were to get involved in those kinds of things, it might disrupt or disturb our serenity. But you see, saving faith is just the opposite. Saving faith is that which invests and loves. Compassionate. Shows charity. Saving faith is not just busy work. Saving faith is purposeful. Saving works are life-giving. Saving works demonstrate the work of agape, of love, of charity, of compassion. James has already introduced us to this idea in verse 27 of chapter 1. He says this, he says, true religion is this, is what? That you visit orphans and widows in their distress. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, true religion is this, is what? Is, as you come into the place of worship, is to not show an attitude of personal favoritism, particularly towards the rich. But rather to be hospitable and, and welcoming of all, the poor and the wealthy. And here in chapter 2, James says this, if a brother or sister is without clothing, and if they need daily food, and you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, he simply asks the question, what use is that? Some faith. What use is that faith? For you see, without works of love, James again reminds us, that our faith is dead, it's worthless, it's non-existent. You see, saving faith is charitable. It's reflective of God's agape love. Another point that, that James brings out, number three, if you're keeping track, saving faith is greater than belief. Now, now follow me here for a few minutes, because in verse 19, James offers this. He says, you believe that God is one, well, you do well. You see, the demons also believe and shudder. James here condemns an intellectual Christianity. A Christianity that is profession without practice. That is orthodoxy without orthopraxy. Again, James is reminding us that true faith Saving faith is one that balances both the intellectual, the study, with the practice, and the carrying out of that faith. I believe that one of the great myths of modern day evangelism, I think it is having impact upon our churches, it has impacted our culture today, we're seeing the fruits of it, is this myth of faith without works. That if you believe the right thing, if you pray the right thing, if you say the right thing, then you will be saved. Just say this prayer. Just repeat these words after me and you'll be saved. Everything will be okay. You see, that is not what the Scriptures teach. Saving faith is greater. Saving faith takes us beyond the facts. John Bailey says this, he says, The real unbeliever is not he whose life witnesses to a belief, 
that he thinks he does not possess, but rather, the real unbeliever is he whose life proves that he really does not believe what he thinks he believes. James is speaking directly to us today when he says that faith is simply not believing or speaking the right things. Again, faith is more than fact. Faith is more than history. Saving faith certainly includes those facts and truths, but it takes us to a level of trust. He reminds us that the demons believe the demons believe and shudder. In fact, in early in his ministry, Jesus had to, to tell the demons to be quiet. <laughs> Don't tell who I am yet. Don't share the truth yet. Christians, Christ followers, however, believe and surrender. They serve through their works of love and compassion. Fourth, saving faith matures us through our works. In James 1, remember we're told that our faith is perfected through our trials. Now James tells us in verse 22 in chapter 2 that our faith is perfected as a result of our works. James adds this to his teaching and he tells us that it's not just about going through trials, it's also about practicing your faith it's about putting feet and hands to your faith in serving your fellow man and woman. Faith is fulfilled. It is strengthened. It is matured when it is exercised. The exercise of faith is called works. And according to Paul in Ephesians 2, those works have been prepared for us beforehand. So that why? So that we could walk in them. So that we could mature in them. Kind of our own IFP, IEP, IFR, our individual faith plan, right? God has preordained those works that He desires us to do that we might be rich and mature in them. Or maybe it's your own personal training, your own personal workout. God has put some works before you. Why? So that you can exercise and so that you can become who God has called you to be. Fifth, saving faith is life. Look in verse 20. Most of your translations will say, faith without works is useless. I think that stands well enough on its own. But listen to how the English revised translation states this verse. Faith without works is barren. What a powerful, powerful, powerful word picture. Fathers, mothers, is your faith barren in your home? Is your faith such that it will never be passed on to your children? You see, faith without works is barren. And I wonder if so many of the issues in our culture, in our churches, in our families today, is that a faith that we have said that we possess and that we own, a faith that we have 
have understood the ritual and the practice of that, of hauling our kids to school, I'm sorry, to church, hauling our kids to camps and retreats, has not been fruitful. Why? Because the faith in the home is barren. You see, saving faith is life. Saving faith is life-giving. Saving faith is demonstrated through those works of love and faith that we practice in the home and in our lives. You see, with upside-down wisdom, we understand that faith with works is the life that we desire and that God desires. Remember the, the starfish illustration? It was one of those powerful stories that, that was told uh, back in the day when I was growing up. The morning after a significant storm, and an older man was walking along the beach, and as a result of the storm of the night before, the, there were thousands of starfish that had, had washed up on the beach, laying there, basically re- waiting to die. And as this older gentleman would walk along the beach, he would, he would bend down and he would pick up one of those starfish and he would throw it back into the ocean. And soon a young man came along and, and he said, excuse me, what, what are you doing? He said, well, I noticed these starfish are, are dying here on the beach and, and I thought I would begin to throw, throw them back so that they could live. And the young man kind of snickered and he looked around and he said, you know, old man, <laughs> what use is it? Look at the thousands and thousands of starfish. You think you're really going to make a difference? The gentleman looked at him as he picked up one of the starfish and he threw it into the ocean and he said, well, it matters to this one. In 1976, Millard Fuller began to act on a housing crisis that he saw in this nation and in this world. A situation of despair and hopelessness for so many. His critics scoffed, thinking that this problem was too big for any one man to settle. We need to let the government handle this, right? May have been why it was in such a problem. Yet Fuller persisted, and Habitat for Humanity was formed. Listen to Habitat's mission statement. Seeking to put God's love into action. Let me rephrase it for us today. Seeking to put faith into works, Habitat for Humanity brings people together to build homes, communities, and hope. Yes, I will grant you that Habitat for Humanity has not solved the housing problem of America, much less of the world. But for the 5 million people living in the 1 million homes that Habitat has constructed over the last 40 years, they will tell you that one man's faith and vision has made a difference in their lives. You see, we get so upset by government programs and waste and welfare, but when was the last time you, you as a person, as an individual, as a family, when was the last time that you fed a hungry child, 
that you fed a hungry widow or a family. I heard a pastor share this week that his young Anglo adult daughter had recently moved into a predominantly African-American neighborhood in Charleston, South Carolina. She had yet really to begin to know her neighbors. It was been that recent. In response to the shooting of Wednesday, she called her parents for comfort and to see if they had any thoughts on how she might respond. Afraid and hurting, she made her way across the street and she knocked on the door. An older African-American lady answered. She introduced herself as the neighbor across the street and she said, I am really hurting right now and I can only imagine how much you must be hurting too. And in that moment, those two strangers became neighbors as they embraced, as they wept, and as they grieved over the tragedy in their own community. You see, faith matters. It matters when it reaches out to those who are hurting and in need. I cannot and you cannot save them all. But together, we can impact the lives of many. So how is your faith working today? How is our faith working? Whose lives are you making a difference in? Whose lives are we impacting and changing? For you see, faith without works is dead, useless, and barren. Faith with works is life. Life Abundant. So let us be perfected in the works that God has called us to. Let us practice our faith. And through the works that we are called to, may God begin to change this world and our community one life at a time. Let's pray. Fathers, as we enter into this time of reflection and prayer, I simply want to speak to you first. What does your faith look like at home? How is your faith demonstrated and lived out before your children? You see, dead faith is not passed on to the next generation. Only faith that is alive. Only faith that is rich in good works. Fathers, what works are you offering as an example to your children? What works are you inviting them to participate and join you in? Maybe on this Father's Day, you would renew and recommit yourself to the Lord and to the children in which He has blessed you with. Father, your word today is powerful. Oh, how we are tempted in our educated intellectual world and culture to think that faith is just about the right information and knowledge. May we realize that as far as knowledge goes, the demons know and they shudder. 
but oh Lord, that we would understand that through our knowledge, through our faith, we are called to work and to serve and to love and to be impacted by the hurt and pain of this world in a way that calls us and drives us to serve and to make a difference. What use is faith if it does not call us to serve?